Academy. This podcast is the second in our series on belief and non-belief, developed in partnership with the Rationalist Association. Hello, I'm Casper Melville, Chief Executive of the Rationalist Association, and here with me is the writer Francis Spofford, author of books like The Backroom Boys and Red Plenty, whose most recent book is called Unapologetic, Why, Despite Everything, Christianity Can Still Make Surprising Emotional Sense. I want to start by asking you, Francis, what are you unapologetic about? I'm unapologetic about about asserting that that religion is is a normal and legitimate part of human experience i'm unapologetic about wanting to disrupt a kind of rather cozy recent cultural consensus that religion must be stupid and um, must happen kind of in a little zoned off naive zoo in in ignorance of the science that would that would let it know better i am unapologetic about um not wanting to be patronized really and finally i'm unapologetic about and this is where i stop being combative and start trying to be trying to be somebody who's who's up for conversation i'm unapologetic about saying that a lot of the contemporary atheist case as it's being made now in britain is is getting what religion is wrong and wrong enough so that it's actually talking past the experience of of religious people that it it looks like engagement, but actually it's, you know, it's liners far apart on a, on a dark and windswept sea. Let me ask you to just give us a kind of brief thumbnail sketch, as it were, of the book. I mean, it, you start in a cafe in Cambridge, I think, and write in a very kind of uh, immediate way about, I mean, it almost sounds like you're angry at that point, or at least, you know, combative, as you say. And then you move into a, a deeper exploration of faith just give us a sense of how the book flows i begin with the the kind of the address at which people think the argument is is happening now where religion is a a, a set of kind of disastrous social destructive disastrous social attitudes um and a set of a set of kind of mock scientific propositions about the about the universe um and yeah i start with a kind of roll call of all the 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 rude things that get repeated and repeated and repeated about religion recently and then try to go no this this treats it as a as a thing made of ideas when actually it's a it's a thing made of experience and produce some kind of sample experiences of mine so that there's something concrete to talk about because you can't really talk about feeling in the abstract feelings are not possessed in the abstract they happen to to individuals so i try and kind of mine my own religious history to give me something definite to talk about and then go on from there to try and build from scratch a kind of um picture in action of how the emotions in my religion christianity fit together with each other i hope in kind of defamiliarized enough terms terms that take nothing for granted that even if you don't share any of the the reference points or the starting points you can still kind of get how how the bits slot together um, it's kind of IKEA version of religion. You have to put it together yourself at home. A flat pack religion. It's a flat pack religion, but but surprisingly comfortable once you've once you've finally worked out what those strange Swedish diagrams mean. You do say in the book, and I think it's true to say, you're not trying to convert people. No, absolutely not. Um, you are trying to explain 
religion to people who may not understand it and you think there's a lot of misunderstanding you you start with the quite a strong case against one particular thing i think this would be useful to to flush out the argument and flesh it out which is the atheist bus campaign mm. this was the campaign where atheists raised money uh, the british humanist association put uh, their seal on it and it uh, these these ads went on the side of buses which said there's probably no god now stop worrying and enjoy your life Hmm. And you you take umbrage at this, and you actually go for it quite strongly in the book. So just give us why, why, why did that particularly annoy you? Because not because of the word probably and on the side of the bus, because my sense is that you know nothing is being asserted there because because actually calculations of probability about God really don't mean very much. So so the, the aggressive word on the side of the bus, as far as I'm concerned, is enjoy enjoy your life because it seems to me. Not that enjoyment is bad. I like enjoyment. The more enjoyment, the better. But that, you know, it's actually a, a smallish part of of human lives that unwittingly it kind of buys into a model of what human life is is supposed to be like, which is kind of all too all too familiar from from contemporary marketing in which in which it's supposed to be about fun, in which the, the default state of humanity is to be having a good time and external forces occasionally perturb us and knock us out of the good time that we're entitled to be having. This seems to me to be crap as a as a description of how human lives actually actually run. Excuse my language, by the way. Um, I find that the effort to avoid blasphemy means that my profanity count has gone way up. Going back a bit, sorry, the bus. Um, it's it's not that I think that all atheists everywhere think think that life is a bed of roses and nothing else. I don't think that the atheist bus is a is a kind of philosophical statement by all atheists. And I do absolutely recognise that it was itself a reply to those nastily printed little posters threatening hellfire, which well, well this this struck me when I was reading it. I yeah. mean, I wondered why you had devoted quite so much ire to this, as knowing that the the campaign you know wasn't actually even. It came out of a particular place. It was a young Guardian journalist who who had this idea because she wanted to answer back to a, a bus poster which promised, as it were, some kind of solace or some gave some sort of what an atheist would consider a false promise. I mean, are you suggesting that that, that is a better thing to offer people some idea that don't worry? I mean, this is an atheist criticism of religion is it says, don't worry about life now, you'll get a better life later. Hmm. Um, you know, arguably... What we, what what those of us who aren't religious consider to be a false promise or something which is a false kind of solace, rather than saying, don't you know, don't worry about that. What's going to happen? Don't worry about hell. Don't worry about eternal damnation. Think about the life as you've got it right now. I don't have any problem with with arguing back against those those posters, but a characteristic mistake is being made here about what what the the hellfire posters represent. Those come from a tiny fraction of British Christianity. I kind of wish they'd shut up too because they certainly don't represent my religion or or the religion of, of um, most people in this country who, who believe. Hell is obsolete. Hell is not a feature in 99% of contemporary British belief. Um, we aren't in the, the hellfire business. And actually speaking for myself... I'm not particularly in in the heaven business either. I don't see religion as being primarily concerned with promises about what happens after you die. So so it seems to me to be to be talking past the issue. The reason I, I made such a big deal of it is not because, you know, campaigning against hell is absolutely fine with me. But 
look what happens if you if you take things that way. You you find yourself saying that that what religion principally is is a source of anxiety. That that that's all it is, and that's not only flat packed. It's kind of it's it's completely two dimensional. Religion, even if you and this is a, an ambition of the book to kind of show this in action. Religion, even if you don't if you don't feel it, if you don't agree with it, even if you disapprove of it, you have to to concede is this vast, elaborate, many-feelinged thing which has lots and lots of social and philosophical and cultural consequences, not just that one. It doesn't just cause fear. So the idea that that you know we'd be fine if the fear caused by religion was removed kind of is to me untrue in its picture of of what life is like and untrue in its picture of what religion is and does and yeah i'm partly being a bit unfair to the atheist bus i'm picking on it because it's a very handy way in rhetorically for me to expand the picture and say there's more to talk about but do you, do you not was, think that i mean one of the criticisms when you've said this is you know don't lump me in with the taliban hmm. or with the you know fundamentalist christianity in the u.s or you know, there's this straw man idea that mm. somehow religion is treated by non-believers as all of a piece. Isn't there a danger that you're doing the same to atheists or, or secularists? I mean, I found myself, you know, reading your book and sort of saying, well, I don't think this, and you haven't, the way you've characterised me doesn't accord. And the piece you wrote for New Humanist magazine, got we got more letters than we'd ever had. And one of the things that everyone who wrote the letter said is, we absolutely agree with Francis Bufford that, you know, you shouldn't parody or mock or, or scorn religious people you know in fact we're not in that business now it's true that there are some people who do that they're the you know they're the equivalent of the hell mongers of religion so i felt that you'd slightly conceded too much ground more ground than you needed to in the initial parts of the book certainly in this anger in this really strong sense i mean you give this list of what you think people who are not religious think of religion this very long list of you know bronze age absurdities and this and that and then you say and almost the worst thing is my daughter is going to be embarrassed of us because we're treated as weirdos. I mean, is it really that bad? Do you really feel that the, the secularist atheist argument, the Richard Dawkins argument, has been so strong that it, is, that it needs the, str the strength of retort that you've given it? Yes. Not because, as you say, not because most atheists who are immensely civilised people are characteristically kind of angry, shouty, in-your-face people. And you know, I entirely take the point that, yes... I have I have committed the the mirror image unfairness. I have assumed that the atheist equivalent of the the hellfire mob are are characteristic, and yet I can see that that's not true. Nevertheless, the public discussion of religion at the moment has been, yeah, amazingly shaped by the by the pervasiveness of what I would see as the the daftest version of the atheist case. Um, I'm I'm going to I'm going to point the finger at Richard Dawkins here because I think the God delusion specifically has um has made our our ability to talk about religion harder i think it's made it's made the conversation stupider and nastier it's a profoundly stupid book as far as i'm concerned yes stupid is the thermonuclear weapon of insults as far as as far as i'm concerned yeah going back a bit because i feel i'm wandering off into an attack of spleen about richard dawkins here wonderful evolutionary biology by the way i've learned a great deal from him it is it is hard to convey how ordinary derision about religion is now. Um, in places like um, like the Guardian's um, comment is free belief section, almost all comments are 
are hostile. It is very hard to talk about belief in public except in some specially set up churchy place without people behaving as if you're taking some kind of diabolical liberty. Um, That's a very, it's a rather bizarre, I mean, it's not exactly, you know, everyday culture. I mean, it's a toxic little uh, ecosystem, as one of my readers described, you know, yeah. the, the comment is free, comments of, of all kinds, it's not just in belief. Well, I wonder I'm, if it's because you're an intellectual. I mean, is it the case it that is. in intellectual circles, in particular, religion is scorned uh, it, at the higher reaches because I mean maybe, maybe. there are ordinary Christians around everywhere who don't seem to be bothered I mean religion yeah. is everywhere on the streets much more than it used to be and do you, do you is there a particular problem amongst the kind of intellectual elite who are who mm, well, that comes precious close to that kind of annoying stuff by by the brights as was about how kind of the more educated you are the more likely you are to be an atheist with its self pleasing little implication that you know that atheism is cleverer than religion. But is that which, not true? Uh, just, no. just, just sort of. Um, what is true is that, is that here specifically in this culture, um, religion has been moved out of the charm circle of educated common sense. Um, it, it no longer looks like a thing that needs to be taken seriously. And to some extent, I'm just trying. Or taken to make, for granted. I don't want it taken for granted, though. I want it dis discussed in terms that concede mutual uncertainty, and I want it shoved back slightly towards the limelight so that we can have we can have better conversations about it well let's get to some of the kind of more the philosophical or the mm. uh, sort of issues here one of the things that you say in the piece that in your book and in the piece that you mm. wrote for new humanist is that really atheists and religious people are, are kind of two sides of the same coin they're both people who are animated by the idea of meaning they care about the universe as it mm. were and, and whether there's meaning religious people obviously find it in god and atheists almost in the idea that there isn't a god and they substitute other kinds of meanings uh, so there is a kind of equivalence yeah but many of our readers uh, have written in and said well that's a false equivalence isn't it because surely it's not just a matter of saying i say there's a god you say there's no god therefore we're equal surely the burden of proof is on the person who proposes that there is something rather than there isn't all right necessary necessary preface here given that my book is is trying to be about experience rather than this stuff and what the book mainly does is go kind of no not at this address somewhere else as far as i'm concerned the proof of the pudding is is in as in as in the experience of belief rather than in this stuff and i i am talking way above my my pay grade if i try and if i try and do things philosophically nevertheless i'll give it a go probably badly so um so please don't judge the availability of all religious philosophy by what I can cobble together in a studio in North London. I have no trouble acknowledging that there is that there is no evidence. And I, I don't want to pull those things in which various other things count as sort of evidence. Um, no evidence is fine as far as I'm concerned. But if you look at the assumption behind the idea that the burden of proof is on is on religious people, that assumption is itself not to do with evidence it is embedded and cultural it has to do with the idea that that a religious claim is an outre claim and an extraordinary claim a claim which is sufficiently detached from ordinary daily life that it would require extraordinary supports that in other words whereas you know we can talk about chairs and tables and hairstyles without anyone having to do any special work of proof if i announce that a flying saucer just went past um then you look to me with a rightly skeptical light in your eye the assumption here is that is that is that god is like the flying saucer he is an utterly out of context event which would which would which would require special proof 
what I'm saying is that from within religion, God is more like the chairs and the hairstyles than the flying saucer. So, so I'm not going to agree with you that 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 God is so far away from the ordinary that the burden of proof is is necessarily on the person who says he's there. As far as I'm concerned, it's more evenly balanced than that. I think it's a consequence of the the remoteness of religion now from a lot of people in Britain's experience that that they've assigned God to this kind of remote, far away, and therefore inherently improbable position. Having said all that, um, honesty then obliges me to go, yeah, there are certainly mornings when when I look around at the solid, compact, self-sufficient material world, which science can certainly explain all of, and... Um, and say, what are you? What are you doing here? Why? Why are you in the business of saying there's more to be said about this? So I'm not unhearing about all of the kind of inductive arguments, which which say, you know, final degrees of proof not available, but we can talk in a in a Bayesian way about what the absence of evidence suggests in a probabilistic way, I kind of I, I, I hear that stuff just as I see the force of Hume in the eighteenth century arguing about miracles and and saying, you know, if you if you're talking about magically multiplying loaves, let's look around in our daily experience now. Do loaves magically multiply? No, ladies and gentlemen, they really, really don't. So this gives us probabilistic information about how to take the New Testament. I get that. And I feel the force of it as well and the whole point of my book is to try and indicate what the blob of emotion is in the other side of the scales which nevertheless balances tips, up tips the balance yeah Let's well, get or, to tip, or tips it back into balance i'm not saying that the the religion side of the scales goes down with a definitive clang after which i'm not even going to pay any attention to mr hume and his absurd notions i'm saying i'm saying that it tips it enough so that the scales wobble in this uncertain way in which there is there is room to be guided by by the heart really okay so let's get to this emotion the, the, the heart of the book i mean as you read it goes deeper and deeper you know you, you're taken inside through mozart's uh, clarinet concerto and, and and into into the bible into the story of jesus things like this let's try and capture just a little bit of this emotional sense then i mean what is it doing for you why does is it is it able to trump your very real doubts your very real respect for science and for logic and reason logic and reason are qualities which can be applied just as well within religion logic and reason okay. are tools to do with the consistency of claims they are not instruments that prove okay, the well, you're, you're logic and reason, reason belong to us just <laughs> as much as they belong to rationalists i think i think the Fair. name of the rationalist association is perhaps very slightly imperialistic in its assumptions about about who's got the reason around here because it's a widely spread phenomenon i mean mm. you're using reason to argue about emotions i mean you're using yeah. you're, you're constructing an argument so i want to know two things one is what what do you get from this what what mm. is this emotional reason i know it's hard to capture and the other thing is isn't it true to say that you can basically justify anything by saying, well, it's, you know, it made emotional sense to me? I mean, I, I was explaining this argument to someone yesterday and she said, well, I'm sure Charles Manson said that what he did made emotional sense to him. I mean, it's very, very subjective. It appears very subjective and therefore a matter of taste or a matter of personal preference rather than something which 
maybe you're saying that, but religion has often made claims that it's larger, i.e. God really is there. If mm. God really did make the universe, God really does love you whether you love him, those kind of things. So let's get into the emotional side of this. And all right, take it in two bits. First of all, the emotions I'm talking about, um, what it gives me is a profound, responsive, realistic acknowledgement of the messiness of human motivations and how how multiple and untidy and sometimes clumsy and not entirely well-meaning and occasionally self-destructive as well as capable of kind of love, heroism, forgiveness, we are. It seems to me to provide a language to talk about the whole range of human experience. And in particular, it provides a thing to do with the parts of yourself that you find you find hard to take it it provides um it provides a place to go with with your sense of what i'm not going to call sin because i don't call it that in the book because the word has been hopelessly corrupted into but is it analogous to original cream. sin this arg- the yeah, argument it, it is, is basically i think yeah. original sin is a is a is a friendly and accurate doctrine um not because it's got anything to do with the Garden of Eden, which is a Hebrew myth, ladies and gentlemen, but because it is observably true that that human beings are capable of of horrible stuff as well as as well as good stuff, and original sin is simply a way of saying um, of saying that we're prone we're prone to fuck things up on purpose. That whatever any society draws as the line between acceptable and, un- and unacceptable, as I say in the book, we're always going to be voting on both sides of it. And religion doesn't give you sin as a series of terrible crimes under which you must cower, but simply as a language to talk about your own biography, about the things the things you screw up, as well as the things you get right. My experience is that allowing a little bit of, of darkness into the picture here is a friendly thing to do and makes you less anxious about the good stuff because it, it means you're not wasting energy on pretense. You can think of this in psychoanalytical terms just as easily. But the difference here, and yes, I am making a truth claim for religion because I don't just think that it's 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 a menu to be followed according to taste. Ultimately, it is a gamble under conditions of radical uncertainty um, on it being true, on there being a state of the universe to which it corresponds, although we can't get at that claim to, to verify it. Um, it's to do with screw-ups, it's to do with mercy for screw-ups, it's to do with being forgiven not because there's a great big judge in the sky who 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 glowers at you and then consents to let you off how humiliating would that be um, but because because if you're religious what you feel when you're lucky is that adjacent to the world that you know there is an extraordinary bottomless endless generosity which is wider than anything humans can manage and on which you can lean which does not mean getting in first with my retaliation here or my defense which does not mean that we think of humans as pathetic wobbling creatures as condemned by Nietzsche who can't stand up and and be autonomous it means that I think you know if we're honest about ourselves no one can manage to be autonomous and self-sufficient all the time Um, leaning on other humans is very necessary and fine, but not always fair to them. And if you've done any of the really bad stuff, then you really don't want to be leaning on your victims going, I'm so sorry I enslaved you. Make me feel better about it. Um, Which is what the author of Amazing Grace, the hymn, was avoiding doing, for example. 
where does this just just give me a picture then of God, your God? I mean, you spend mm. quite a lot of time. In fact, modern Church of England people spend quite a lot of time sloughing off various a- aspects of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's not a man in the sky. It's not a judge. No heaven. No hell. No Garden of Eden. Lots of the good bits go. By the way, I think even if I was religious, I'd enjoy those bits. But what are we bits. left with in relation? So God is this force of mm-hmm. this benevolent force of mercy which is beyond humanity yes but 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 again fourth is a word out of out of physics it's also i can't help noticing a word out of star wars and i i would i would i'm not obi-wan kenobi here um i'm afraid a lot of my understanding of this stuff does come from star wars of course um i could make i could make kind of lightsaber noises if it would help <laughs> no it's more like it's more as if God is the is the is the solidity of all solid things and the movement of all moving things. It's science fictional analogy. Um, it's closer to the Matrix, frankly, except the world is not made out of code. The world is um, the world is made out of love. Right. Well, I okay. Now I heard you say I think it was in the video that you did to accompany mm. your book that one of your tasks, one of you wanted to do, was make religion less mysterious. Mm. I mean, in a way, your book is you know religion is ordinary. Yeah. But that all sounds very mysterious to me. It remains utterly mysterious. As a non-believer, as mm. a non-religious person, I've never been religious. I know you've been an atheist. I have. Um, I don't understand what you're talking about. I mean, I literally don't get it. I don't get how you could feel that. I understand how you could want to feel that, yeah. how it would be great if it were true, you know, if there were this sense of mercy. But I don't know how one goes about acquiring it, um, nor do I feel that I... N- I have a gap. I mean, I spoke to the Greenbelt Festival recently, and someone, um, and it was about uh, secular sources of hope. And someone in the front row said to me, "Oh, you're almost there. You know, I bet you. In, I bet you in a few years you'll be a Christian." And I was like, "Oh, okay then." And then someone else said, "They mean that kindly." No, you know? I understood that, and I was talking about you know I, a, a, an idea about human frailty and fragility that mm. that most a lot of atheists have. You know, human nature is a mixed bag, and people do terrible things to each yep. other. Um, and then someone else said to me, well, how do you deal with the, you know, the gap, the hole in your life if you don't have God? And I said, well, I don't consider that I've got a hole. I feel like you've got something that is mysterious to me, you know, like a beige sofa, I said. I mean, I wasn't trying to be rude, but it, it, it feels to me like that. I, I, it's more mysterious. The more you try and explain it, the more mysterious it becomes yeah. in a way. The stuff about the Matrix was a rapidly improvised and not very, not it was very what successful you said before metaphor. that was more mysterious. Yeah, good. Um, the thing is that I can make... I can make bits of religion less mysterious i can talk about how the emotions slot together recognizably in lies but but yes um in just the terms you're talking about it is clearly all the time propped on something on something else when i was an atheist i didn't feel a god-shaped space so i'm kind of i'm with you there i don't i don't think that it's part of human equipment to go round with 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 a gap which you, know, you feel a mighty sense of ha ah, i can comfortably exhale because now i've got god it, it that doesn't seem to me to be to be true to human psychology on the other hand i can also report that feeling mercy is a genuine experience it does it does actually happen and i've done my best to kind of recreate it in words on the page so that if you haven't felt it you can go kind of oh it's sort of that apparently even though i haven't been there myself part of this is just the the kind of the inevitable solitariness of human experience kind of i can press my forehead hard against yours and and there will still be no mixing of um of of emotions here 
It may be, though, that there is a bit of room for manoeuvre in that experiences you think of under a completely different heading might be the same ones I think of as religious experiences. For example, I would imagine that you too, if you sit down in some in some quiet place for a while, have been known to feel a sense of calm or quiet or or numinousness. Though I, I I not only find that word difficult to say, I kind of disapprove of it as well because it it's it's so kind of wafty. But t- so, all right, for example, um, I, I'm going to say this very very carefully because I don't want to be unfair to Terry Pratchett, a person I revere as a writer, and I'm very clear that he's a... But I remember reading, shortly after his Alzheimer's diagnosis, that he had had a moment when he felt a kind of an assurance of deep safety, some sense that that everything was going to be all right, which absolutely didn't rule out where the Alzheimer's might go, right? Now, he clearly does not think that's a religious emotion. I would say it was, and and I would say that that was probably, probably because I can't press my head against his until I'm sharing the thoughts there either, I would say that that was probably the thing I talk about when I mean, when I mean the presence of God. Maybe this is a categorization, maybe this is a labeling problem. Oh, that's a very interesting, interesting way of putting it. So those of us who are not religious may well be experiencing similar kinds of emotional experiences, which you would say would be religious, maybe even God, but mm. not knowing it. Yeah. yeah. I want to get back uh, to the the sort of engagement with non-religious people mm. and, and, and how they think about religion and why they think about it. Um, you make the fairly common argument, which is that there's no one who set up an anti-stamp collecting movement or magazine or written a book about why stamp collecting is bad. Why would anyone bother setting up an anti-religion magazine or arguably my magazine is, is that or, or write a book, you know, the stamp collecting delusion. And again, the letters I received after your piece in my magazine, all many of which said, well, it's because stamp collectors have never tried to run my life, interfere with my sexuality, you know, beat me for asking questions or any of the other things which religion has been responsible for, in, mm. often in the lives of some of the people who've come over to atheism because of the negative experiences they've had with religion. And if they did, there would be a need for an anti-philatelist movement. Don't you think you're underestimating the degree of anger, the justified anger that people have, whether it's child abuse in the Catholic Church or, uh, you know, radical Islam or many other examples where religion really has has been responsible for some dreadful things and continues to be? Yes, the I mean the philately analogy is obviously only meant to to draw attention to one bit of what I think is the slightly odd psychology with which some atheists fixate strangely on the continuing fact of other people's belief instead of going off and enjoying their lives. But yes, I I entirely acknowledge that there is a lot of stuff religion does, has done, unfortunately continues to do, which you'd be justified in being angry about. I am not saying that religion has no effects in the world. But what I want to say is that religion's effect in the world are much more various than the characterization of it just as a source of fear, bullying, kind of repressing of questioning, kind of bigotry about sexuality, misogyny. I mean, you get an awful lot of talk about religion now as if that was its only set of social effects and that those are so dreadful that we can just kind of judge the whole package by those. Those are dreadful. Those are bad things. But religion is not some special all-evil, all-the-time department of of human activity. Religion is an enormously various 
culturally complicated, embedded human enterprise through which a whole vast array of human motives run, including all of the small-c conservative motives to do with keeping everything nicely the same and approved and safe and shiny and reliable and not the nasty, dirty stuff which I want kept away, very anthropological. It is also, in different times and different places, a, a, a vehicle for, you know, for asceticism, carnality, generosity, stinginess, every other opposed pair of qualities you, you can think of. It's huge. It is, it is as various as any other aspect of human culture. It is as various in its effects as, as politics or as law. And all I want is for people to see religion as big enough to have lots of different things happening in it. And then it seems to me that it would make sense to say not when religion is cruel, we shall condemn religion, but when religion is cruel, we shall condemn cruelty. That seems to me but to have more traction. But is there not something inherent in religions in the past? I mean, no. Uh, yeah, something no. which is, has 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 licensed the power of men. Something as, so it's licensed the subjugation of women. I mean, not, is it a coincidence that religion has tended to be you know run by men for the benefit of men, subjugated Societies women? Societies have tended to be run by men for the benefit of of men. Religion, among other things, it not only legitimates those power structures and all that nasty patriarchal stuff. It has also provided. A, a whispering critique of those things all the way through. I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian and, and I am particularly conscious of Christianity's kind of liberating potential here, religion for slaves and women, and proud of it. But, you know, it's there in Islam too, although Islam is complicatedly different because of being a, a law religion. Muhammad condemning female infanticide is something which Muslim feminists have been able to to pick up and run with. It's never the the document never only says one thing, just as kind of human societies never only say one thing. I think that what you're saying here is that um or what you're you're feeling here perhaps is that is that the idea of an almighty god is itself a hierarchical idea that there is something which licenses subordination in the human world in the very idea of an almighty being out yeah. there where and you then have people to, you who have claim to, to have special to access to yes. them can then exercise that power yeah. in the world it, it does um, seem to lend itself to that yes. kind of abuse um observably however societies which which don't do monotheism and don't have an almighty being find perfectly good other ways to to, for, for the powerful to, to say that they have access to special sources of certainty so everybody else must approach them approach them bowing, um, leave backwards and do exactly what they're, what they're told. Religion is not our exclusive source for, for that stuff. Religion is very often coloured by the societies it happens in. The Middle Ages is a world run by kings so it thinks God is a king. Um, the Roman Empire is a world run by emperors so it thinks God is an emperor. We project like crazy but that is never all that is happening there is always a quiet whispering counter script at work that goes no bigger than your descriptions gets out around the edges more than that less than that other than that be less certain religion is as potent a source of uncertainty as certainty i think yeah this is something that richard holloway says in his very good book about about that uh, the, the former uh, Bishop of Edinburgh, who has kind of come out, almost come out the other side of religion, although retains a belief in God, and says, you know, you can't, you, we concede nothing in the way of doubt to to atheists. Um, it, doubt is ever present with faith; it goes hand in hand, which is a fascinating idea. I just want to ask you finally about this 
about secularism in the UK. I've mm. got a number of things in my mind, so I'll about bundle them together and you can answer them. One is that, do you consider that you're part of this kind of, as it were, almost a fight back against secularism, which seems to have been happening recently? We've had George Carey, uh, Saida Warsi, Eric Pickles, uh, even David Cameron, you know, nodding his head to the idea that, you know, there's something wrong with secularism, that secularism equates to having no values, to not caring about the world, and what you need is more faith, and to outsource everything to faith institutions. So how do you feel about... Are you, are you part of that? No. Um, David Cameron wants the 6% of the church-going vote because the next election is going to be extremely tight. I would say that because I'm a Labour voter. No, I, I, I think there is a real danger of a kind of Christian self-pity here, which is to be avoided, particularly since you know it can work as a vehicle for a kind of nostalgia for a past which is perceived as simpler and you know whiter. Um, I think it's not an accident that the, that the BNP tried the experiment of election leaflets with pictures of cathedrals on in order to encourage their kind of the Islamophobic bits of their agendas. You will be glad to know that the Church of England stamped this out as quickly as it possibly could because, you know, we don't like fascists very much. No, the, the danger here is is a kind of a kind of self-pitying Christian identity politics, which I think would be disastrous and and really inappropriate i am um, in particular i i detest the idea uh, which george Carey is responsible for that we are persecuted no we bloody aren't persecuted persecution persecution is when they burn your churches down or don't give you licenses to build them persecution is not people is not people politely laughing at you in the guardian persecution is not having to argue we are utterly unpersecuted Having said that, lots of things which are you know, which are legal and really should be legal, hooray for free speech, are quite rude, and and I, I'd quite like to be rude back to some of them. Um, but no, Christianity is in a state in this country which, you know, to some large degree, its own fault, and the tools for for getting people to think better of us are entirely in our hands. We just have to, to talk in a way people like more and find ways to describe who we are and what we are, which 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 make more sense. That's not a situation of persecution. That's a situation of being a minority. And I just think we should kind of be funnier. You can live with that. Being <laughs> I can live with that. I can live with that. We... we, we I can live with that. Um, and it's it's dangerously silly to talk about us being persecuted. We should save that language for people elsewhere in the world, including Christians elsewhere in the world, who are genuinely in situations of And of, of course oppression. it enrages atheists to hear, to it's hear that. Complete, so it's well, a, and, and, it's I'm, a red rag to a ball. I am going to rush around to the atheist side and blow raspberries with you on this one. It's ridiculous. Finally, you don't, you're never going to get very far by saying, why, why didn't you write another book than the one you did? But some people... I've heard say, and it led me to thinking this as well, which is that on the one hand, you're talking about, as it were, a decline of religion or a decline Mm. of respect for religion, which needs counterbalancing. On the other hand, religion in many other ways is growing, but different kinds of religion. And there may be different kinds of religion that perhaps you feel that you can't really talk to. But from our side, as it were, the irreligious side, the question is, you've written this book, as it were, to us, to explain yourself to us. Why aren't you spending more time trying to talk to the other sides of religion and try and address I mean because we, we're actually we agree that there are some real problems there and also in, because of multicultural Britain and the changes there there is large amounts of Christianity growing in my neighbourhood it's Pentecostal Christianity it's charismatic it doesn't seem to have very much in common with your kind of Christianity it may well be literalist I mean 
is there any sense that you would like to or you could or you should be building bridges with other people within Christianity, perhaps even beyond Christianity, and try and, you know, talk some sense into them? Heavens, yes. But not to try and talk sense into them, because I think a lot of them are already making sense all on their own. I didn't write this book to talk to atheists primarily. I wrote this book to talk to as many people as I could. And atheists, in a way, are the easiest part of the audience, because you actually care about this stuff already. I'm sorry, but that's why... I do all this annoying stuff about saying that we're kind of brothers and sisters under the skin. Kind of you, atheists. Atheists think theism is interesting, much more challenging. The 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 vast um, the vast ground of people who kind of are getting on fine and really don't see why they should be bothered. Well, after all, my magazine is New Humanist and it's all about religion and faith, but from the perspective of not believing it. We so thank you for keeping your we're very thank you for interest. True. Um, um, yes. Your, your your loyalty to the whole to the whole to the whole idea that this stuff is interesting is is noted and appreciated. But in terms of reaching out to other mm. you, know, you know religious yeah. uh, types of religion, I mean yeah. not just you, but it's the Church of England type of intellectualized pro science. Mm. Uh, I mean I know it's emotional and it's real and all the rest of it, but it's also clever and very sophisticated, very mature. It's a very mature religion. Ooh, I'm wary of the whole. The, of I, I, I see approaching. I see approaching the the fork that goes kind of ah, sophisticated believers go off here, but everyone else. Yeah. Um, well, I'm suggesting that you know that you I, don't well, do I, that. No, I'm not. But there, I, are there grounds to be able to do to, to build bridges there? There are, but I mean, in a way, I feel that I feel that your sense that I'm doing something completely different is 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 a is is a misunderstanding. Um, the bridges already exist. All fellow Christians belong to part of a world where, where we, you know, we don't always like each other, but we can understand each other. I've got a passage in the book where which I picked the Christian I thought it would be most challenging to claim any kind of affinity, which which ended up being Sarah Palin. Unfortunately, I have to see her as a sister, someone who's got something right. Everything else about her is quite as frightening for me as it is for most other people with my politics who happen not to be religious but I have to say there's an affinity there and in the language of feeling kind of we we are we are associated attached there is something there which is not reducible to politics or American culture or gun control or um or climate change or science or creationism the list goes on and on and on but I think she's got something right and I I can't kind of disavow her so does that apply so, to other religious believers, to Muslims well, and Hindus? And yeah, well, uh, Scientologists. Easy, it's easy. Ooh, now you're asking. Not Scientologists, because that's that's not a religion. Let's be honest. That's a oh no. <laughs> I don't want that. To, of course, I don't want that to be a religion. Would you like to be in a club with Scientologists? Um, um, unfair of me to bring other, it up. Probably. No, it's not unfair. It's absolutely fair of you to bring it up. Monotheists are 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 easy. Jews, Muslims, and Christians are historically cousins. Um, we are we are all worshippers of the one God. Oneness makes sense to us. Um, other bits of the conversation are very historically difficult, but that's easy. Hindus and other polytheists are are harder, but once you're talking at the level of the kind of the religious life, there's a common language. And yeah, if I'm going to be anthropologically honest, I have to say that that this stuff is probably kind of one bit of human culture with many many forms even really silly forms so so god do i have to be cousins with scientologists um yes. it's a lot easier loving atheists than it is loving scientologists oh, thank you very much you're welcome we're cuddly that way
And Scientologists are not very cuddly, but I suppose what you can say is that the motives that run into Scientological belief, even the ones to do with mysterious aliens and uh, exploitation and yeah, and, ties with and family. strange boxes that cost you kind of hundreds of pounds and um, and you know, abuse of the charitable status of religion and strange gonzoid drone-like American teenagers travelling forever around the world on ocean liners. I think the best I can say there is that there are motives I would respect which have been channeled into a deeply unworthy vehicle. I think we better leave it there. I mean, there's so much more to talk about, but um, thank you very much, Francis. The book, again, is un- unapologetic. Why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. That's from Faber. Uh, fascinated to talk to you. Thanks a lot for coming. Cheers. Cheers.